Please bow your heads with me as I pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness in our lives that we just sang about. We thank you for friends that cross cultural boundaries. We thank you for grace that saves and grace that sanctifies to help us become more like you. We glory in these things that you gave us through the cross. And now as we turn our hearts to you, would you speak to us through your word that we would be transformed in our hearts and our minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started, I'd like to give my welcome again to Enrique and Lete. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine, but I first met Enrique uh, in 2000, uh, summer of 2000. I was leading a mission trip of high school and junior high students to Tijuana, and we stepped off the plane, and Enrique greeted us, and he ran that whole week, and I saw how amazing work that he did, and we became friends. At that point, have been friends ever since, and so Enrique and later are some of the most effective uh, people in the mission field I've seen, and so we are so grateful uh, to be able to partner with them as Crossview Church. One of our visions, our vision at Crossview Church is to see 5,000 people impacted by Crossview living out the gospel of Christ uh, in our city and beyond, and to be able to partner with them and see gospel impact through them to make that ripple effect that we talked about is just really amazing. So thank you, Enrique and Lede, again for being here. So not that long ago, we hosted an event that was produced by Voice of the Martyrs, which is an organization that helps the persecuted church around the world. And uh, this video event shared three main stories of three people who were imprisoned and tortured for their faith. Uh, and one in particular was a man named Dan Bauman. Uh, Dan Bauman was doing medical work in Iran uh, when he was uh, imprisoned and tortured for nine weeks. And as he shared his story, he was extremely transparent, extremely real, very honest. And he talked about how difficult it was to, to endure that day after day after day after day. And he got to a point at one spot where he said he couldn't do this anymore. And so he uh, attempted to commit suicide. It was a failed attempt. Um, and he said at that point, he was probably at the lowest he's ever been at his life. And once again, he cried out to God. And he said at that moment, God met him in a powerful way where he sensed the presence of Jesus in his cell with him so powerfully that it infused in him a newfound joy a newfound strength, a newfound peace, a newfound love. And he had this quote, he said, it gave him the ability to live the Christian life like never before. Wouldn't you want to have that? The ability to live the Christian life like never before. It's something that I would want. He said they realized they can't kill a dead man. I'm already dead in Christ, and if they kill me, I will be with my Savior. And that infused him to face what he had to face. I have not experienced near an ounce of the hardship that Dan Bauman experienced, but if I'm honest with you, this last year and a half has been a difficult one for me. I've seen and faced heartaches that I never expected to face. And seeing Dan Bauman inspired me and gave me the encouragement that what we do in the Christian life isn't just some religious subculture, 
but it's the life of God living with inside of us to empower us to continue in how we live. And I know some of you haven't had it that easy the last year and a half either. And so uh, my hope and prayer is that we find what Dan Bauman found, that we find Christ this morning in a powerful way. Although Dan Bauman said he would never want to be imprisoned or tortured again, he found gospel living in that very dark place. He found the secret of how to live the abundant Christian life, and he found how to live through painful experiences, and he realized that he was never, ever alone. There's another person who found the life of Christ through moments of torture and imprisonment during his lifetime, and that was the Apostle Paul. And in 60 AD, he wrote a letter to a group of people that he dearly, dearly loved. He loved them and they loved him. Because nine years before his imprisonment, he started a church. He planted a church, just like Enrique and Lady plant churches. The Apostle Paul planted this church nine years before he was imprisoned. It was the first church, first Christian church in Europe. And he planted this church, and he loved the people dearly, and they loved him. He was their first pastor. And they heard of his imprisonment, and their hearts wanted to do something, because he was their first pastor, and they loved him, and the apostle Paul loved them. In fact, some scholars say that this church was Paul's favorite church based off of what they can see and how he wrote. I know what that's like to be a pastor and be loved by a church, because this church cross you has loved me very, very well, and I'm grateful for that, and I love you very, very much. And so there's this bond that happens. And when this church found out that Paul was in prison, they wanted to do something. This church was in a town called Philippi. It was a beautiful town that was mostly made up of war veterans. Because what the Roman Empire did is that when a battle uh, took place and the leader, a commander of that battle came home from victory, they gave him a spot in Philippi. They gave him like a, a beautiful little area to live. It was kind of like a resort village for successful victorious generals. That's kind of what Philippi was. It was majority of the people there were war heroes. And so they had influence. And they heard Paul was in prison, so they wanted to send a gift. So they found this young man among them named Epaphroditus, and they gave him a financial gift, a letter, and a few things. And Epaphroditus delivered this letter to Paul and brought all the gifts with him. Paul wrote a letter back to the church, sent it back with Epaphroditus, and that letter is the book of Philippians that we have in our New Testament. In this letter, we see what is possible for a Christian when they get squeezed with the difficulties of life. Have you ever been squeezed with the difficulties of life? Sometimes as Christians, when we're squeezed with the difficulties of life, often what comes out are things like anger or anxiety or worry or depression or busyness or quest for approval or esteem protection. However, This letter tells us that as followers of Jesus, when we get 
pressed by the trials of life, what can come out of us is love and grace and patience and holiness and strength. Do you want that? I know I want that. If you've been around the church for a while and you've heard of the book of Philippians, you may have heard that the Philippians is the book of joy. And though we see joy in this book, I don't believe that's the main message of the book of Philippians. I believe the main message is what we're going to look at in a few moments in chapter 1, verse 27, and I've named our series that we're kicking off today by that title. I think the main point of the book of Philippians is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's main point. Paul wanted to communicate this to this church that loved him. He had no idea if he was going to live another day. He was imprisoned. He's facing death. And in that moment of looking death in the eye, he wanted to communicate a message to these people he dearly loved. And the message was to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main point of this whole letter. That was the heart cry he had for himself. And that was the heart cry he had for this church. And I think if he was here among us, that would be his heart cry for us at Crossview as well. I'm going to do something a little different in this series. I typically go through and, and uh, preach verse by verse. However, what I want to do in this four weeks that we have ahead in this series called A Life Worthy of the Gospel is instead of doing verse by verse, I want to take this purpose living a life worthy of the gospel. And I want to go through the four chapters of Philippians and show how Paul instructed them on how to do this. How do we live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul taught them through the book of Philippians. And I'm going to go to the key areas, four key areas of how we live a gospel life, how we live a life worthy of the gospel. And today we're going to look at the first one, which is think eternally. Next week, we're going to look at walk humbly. In week three, we're going to look at grow consistently. In the last week, we're going to look at pray fervently. There'd be like four pearls around a neck that instruct us on how we, in today's world, live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we live this out in both the good times and the bad times with the help of of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first one, think eternally. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Philippians chapter 1, if you haven't already. If you're using the Bible in the worship center on the seats in front of you, I'll be on page 1040. If you're new to the Bible in Philippians, you kind of go to the back, it's towards the back. If you see 1st, 2nd Corinthians, keep going. Then you'll see Ephesians and Philippians. If you hit 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, you went too far. In order to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to consistently think eternally. We need to view our lives in this world through eternal lenses. In order to impact our world with the gospel, we must be with God. We must be in relationship with God. Our withness affects our witness. See what I did there? We need to be with God in order to have an impact in this world because when we're with God, the more we saturate ourselves with God, we get his perspective on this life. 
Being with God begins with our minds, what we think. And Philippians challenges us in what we think about death and what we think about life. So the first thing I want to look at is what Paul addresses is how do we think eternally about death? Thinking eternally about death helps us think eternally about life. So let's look what Paul says in the very first verse of chapter 1, verse 21. This sentence, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We have to camp there for a while. For me to live is Christ, and to die is is gain. What Paul is saying is no one is really ready to live until they're ready to die. No one is really ready to live in this life until they've come to peace with God and they're ready to die. This is how the Apostle Paul lived. You live life at its best in the here and now when you know that the only thing death can do is usher you into the presence of Jesus Christ forever. You know that you live life at its best in the here and now when you know the only thing death can do is usher you into the presence of your loving Savior forever. Paul finds himself looking death square in the eyes, yet he is living with this unwavering passion to live with Christ and be on mission for Christ. It's what oozes out of him in this imprisonment, in this difficulty. He has this sense of joy and peace. And he wants all of his dear friends in this church to be ready to die if necessary, that they may truly live. Every person who has surrendered their lives fully to Jesus can live with that same assurance. Paul makes this profound statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live for Christ doesn't mean we just exist and attend church. To live for Christ doesn't mean we just participate in some religious things or that we add church or life group onto an already busy life, but other than that, we don't do anything in terms of spirituality. That's not living for Christ. Not everyone who's alive truly lives. Not everyone who's alive truly lives. Paul means to live a life that is truly alive. We must live for Christ unapologetically, intentionally, and without compromise. If you look at this sentence, to live is Christ and to die is gain, in the original language, there is no word is. Is has been put in there by translators to help with readability, but it reads originally, to live Christ, to die gain. It's emphatic. Paul is in prison awaiting trial. He's assuming that death is around the corner, and he has this unwavering focus to live for Christ. And he makes this bold confession of faith. His life is consumed with Jesus. There's this passionate pursuit of his whole being to glorify God every moment of every day. That is how the Christian life is supposed to be lived. Where Jesus is your number one And everything else is a distant second. Now Jesus has given us, God has given us amazing, what I call second place blessings. Things like spouses, 
Things like family, things like parents, things like brothers and sisters, things like friends, things like a job, things like food, things like water, things like provision, even things like entertainment. But these are all supposed to be in second place or beyond. First place in our hearts is reserved for Jesus Christ and him alone when you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus Christ and him alone. If you take a second place blessing and you put it in first place, you've just committed the sin of idolatry. You're worshiping a false god. And there's a chronic problem in the church of the United States where we worship these second place blessings. And Paul is giving us here a correction that we need to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, you are first place in my life. This is how the early church walked out their relationship with God. In Acts chapter eleven twenty six, there was this church. And it's the first place ever where people were called Christians. Because the surrounding community looked at them and to make fun of them, they made up this negative slur called Christian, which means little Christ. And they called them little Christ, but they saw it as a badge of honor because that's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be reflections of their master Jesus. And so they kept this and it's been passed on because they lived in a way where all the second place blessings stayed in second, third, fourth, fifth place. And Jesus was the first place. For Paul, nothing else compares. Is this how we live today as followers of Jesus Christ in 2022? Do we cling to Christ each day regardless of what we face? To be a genuine Christian means we live for Christ and Christ alone. He goes on to say, to die is gain. Again, no is for the greater punch. To die, gain. Gain means great profit. Paul realizes death gives him great gain because death ushers him into the glory of his first place love. The glory of the one who holds first place in his heart. Death brings him into the presence of Jesus Christ forever. And it's the most glorious thing that can ever happen to a person. Death is not tragedy for Paul. Death is triumph for Paul. It's the beginning of real life. This is a truth that all Christians need to deeply know. The most important thing about heaven is not that there's streets of gold. The most important thing about heaven is not that there's pearly gates. The most important thing about heaven is not even that there's no more sin and suffering and sadness. That's not the most important part, although it's glorious. The most important part is not even that we will see loved ones who followed Christ and we'll be with them again forever and ever. That's not the most important part of heaven. The greatest thing about heaven will be that we will see Jesus Christ face to face in all of his glory as he really is. And we will be transformed forever. The glory of heaven is Jesus Christ himself. And Paul knew that. So death brings him peace. Death brings him joy. Death creates in him a longing to experience what he can't imagine. As Christians, you and I must see death that way before we truly live in this life. 
This world does not see death that way because it can't see death that way. This world is overwhelmed by the despair of death. This world must deny death. This world must ignore death. This world must be distracted from that horrible thing no matter what else it takes. Don't believe this about death if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to have a confidence that when death comes, you will live in paradise forever and ever. Reverend Billy Graham said when he was alive, a day is coming when you're going to hear that Billy Graham died. Don't you believe it? Because nothing could be further from the truth. He said, I'll, never, I'll be more alive than I've ever been alive in my life. I've just only changed addresses, that's all. That's gospel living. That's what death looks like when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of that, Paul has this problem now that he talks about in verse 22. He says, now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ in heaven, which is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul doesn't know what to choose. He wants to go be with his first love, Jesus, but he loves this church so much and he wants to make sure that they experience what he's experiencing. So he has this colliding of desires. We often experience this with Christian loved ones who are suffering and approaching their deathbed. There's a part of us that doesn't want them to leave, but yet we know it's going to be better for them. And there's this collision of desires and confusion, and that's where Paul is. Ultimately, it's not our choice to choose, thank God. In pure natural circumstances, Paul didn't know what to do. God was going to decide, it would be carried out through Caesar's decision, what would happen. So there's this internal struggle with Paul. And where does he land? Look at verse 25. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, I don't think he was here in this moment and all of a sudden he got this revelation from God that said, you're going to live. It could have happened that way, but I don't think that's what happened. I think he just settled in his mind that he's going to purpose as he's staring death in the face and trust that God will be in charge in his far as he can think of it, he's going to just live for the church of Philippi and all the other churches because that would be what's best for them. We see this theme throughout this letter where Paul shelves his own personal desires for the sake of others. That's love. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's shelving his desire to be with Christ for the sake of others. Look at verse 26. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ may abound. Paul is saying, when you see me set free from this, you will praise God that he moved powerfully and got me out of prison. I was in prison for preaching the gospel and he moved and released me from this prison. And you will praise God when you see that. To die, gain. Do we view death like that? Viewing death that way ushers in a whole new way of living. As Christians, we do not have to be afraid of death. In fact, it's the greatest thing that will happen to all of us. 
Not we thought eternally about death, let's think eternally about life. Look at verse 27. Just one thing. It says just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main point of this whole book. Scholars say that when Paul wrote just one thing, it was as if he was lifting up a finger in warning to this church, make sure you consume yourself with this one thing. There are no other options for the follower of Jesus, is what he's saying. He says if you're going to follow Christ, you must live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's no longer optional. That's number one. That's the one thing you do as a Christian. You live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians make a statement about Jesus, not only with their lips, but more so with their actions. Just one thing means this is the only way. Christians now must model the message they believe. They surrendered their lives to Jesus and his kingdom. Now they must live that out. And to live your life worthy of the gospel summarizes how Christians are supposed to live. The idea behind this phrase is to live out what the gospel teaches, that Jesus Christ brought us back into relationship with God. So now we have peace with God. We can live with God forever. And now we model the manner of life, the community that we see in God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's how we're to live. Let's look into this further to see how we live today in this main message of the whole book. Let's slowly go through this one more time. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Paul's appealing to something here. See, these were people living under Roman Empire rule. Their citizenship was in their face 24-7. They were constantly taught how you can behave as a Roman citizen and how you can't. Citizenship was something that was always in front of them that they saw all the time. And so now Paul takes that and he's using it and twisting it and he's saying just as the Roman Empire citizenship is always in front of you saying live your life worthy of that, the truth is as a Christian, you're citizens of heaven. Your citizenship lies somewhere else. It lies in the new heaven and the new earth that's coming. The new Jerusalem is coming when Jesus Christ returns. So live your life worthy of the gospel in view of your citizenship of heaven. That's his passion, that Christians would live with that in view, that we live what we believe, and we live what God began in our hearts to do, and we're faithful to that work. Since we are to live a life worthy of the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, God created human beings to be in relationship with him, and human beings with our free will rebelled against a holy God. This created a separation, it says in Isaiah 59, between a holy God and sinful human beings because God can have nothing to do with sin because he's holy. But God looked at that and he didn't leave it there. He was motivated by love because God loved the world so much that he gave his son and his son Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect life you and I can't live. Then he went to a cross and he took and absorbed the punishment for your sin and my sin. 
God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on the cross. And then he poured out all of his wrath, his fury, and his punishment towards sin, past, present, and future, upon his one and only Son. The emotional agony that Christ had to feel is unparalleled than anything we can think of. And he did it for us to bring us back into relationship with Christ. Because now, when we repent and we believe, the perfection of Jesus, that righteous perfection, comes over us imperfect human beings so we can stand before our perfect holy God. The righteousness of Jesus is transferred to us as our sin was transferred to him. That's the gospel. And when you repent and believe and surrender your life to him, you're changed. And we must preach this gospel to ourselves over and over and over because we live in a world that constantly bombards us with lies. When you feel you don't deserve God's love, remember the gospel. When you feel you'll never be enough, remember what Jesus did. When you feel you must prove yourself and make sure everyone gives you affirmation, remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Detach from the things of this world and attach to him. Paul's desire in this passage is that the church would become truly gospel people. Gospel people are people that when they're squeezed with the pressures of life, Jesus is what comes out. Let's look at what it means to be a gospel people as we close. First of all, gospel people are unified. Look at verse 27 again. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, unified, in one accord, unified, contending together for the faith of the gospel. When you receive the gospel and live it out, you're placed in this eternal family called the church. The church isn't a building. The church isn't a location. The church is a family that you're placed into, and it's a cross-cultural, multicultural family. We are placed in this family with people from very different cultures and tongues and expressions, and it's a beautiful thing that God created in his church. He died for his church on the cross, and he brings us into the church, so unity is of the utmost importance to God. It's of the utmost importance to his heart. And when the church is unified, it becomes a place of strength that reminds us who we live for, reminds us who Jesus is. And when we face difficult times and we can't go on, we're reminded of who God is because of the unity of the church. That's why living a life worthy of the gospel involves preserving unity. Gathering reminds us of Christ. Gathering reminds us that there's something greater to come beyond ourselves. Gathering reminds us that we love one another as he has loved us. As the church stays unified, a beautiful thing happens. The gospel is expressed. Just by us being unified, we communicate to a dying world that there's a God in heaven who has a son, Jesus Christ, and a Holy Spirit who went, and Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins so that you can have peace with God. That's proclaimed as we live out this message as a family. That we don't fight against one another, but we come together against our common enemy, Satan. And as a church family, we repel his ways and his plans to try to sneak in and divide. 
I have a dream about Crossview Church, and I saw just a little piece of it a couple Sundays back. I have a dream that we'd walk in the foyer, or I'd walk out after a sermon, and I'd look in that foyer area, and there'd be people with lots of Bibles open, showing each other words of encouragement to go back in the battle that they're facing. That there'd be people who are praying for one another. Because someone came in from our church family and said, I'm really struggling this week. Here's what's going on. And another brother or sister said, let's pray right now and ask God to fill you. And a couple Sundays back, I was sitting out there, standing out there, and I looked on the side and I saw two people holding hands praying for each other. One of them wasn't a pastor. It's the two brothers and sisters coming together in the family of God after you've been kicked around in life during that week and you need a reminder that God is good. And you need a reminder that God still loves. And you need a reminder that God is still there and he still cares. And he's giving you this church family for us to express that. The church is unified. And it's an amazing gift. Not only are gospel people unified, gospel people are courageous. Look at verse 28. And not being frightened in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. Because, of the king of, because the king of the universe saved you, because the king of the universe keeps you, what can harm you eternally? The worst thing that can happen to you in this life is that you go and be with your Savior in paradise early. When we are hit with the fears, anxieties, and worries of this life, we have someone we can go to, Jesus Christ, who brings us strength, who brings us hope, who brings us peace, who brings us assurance in the midst of the trials of life. Run to Jesus with your fears and your trials. Finally, gospel people are loving people. Look at verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have, we will suffer in this life. That's guaranteed. The Christian life is not one absent from trial. It's not one absent from suffering. In fact, you could say it's worse than those who don't live for Christ. We will experience trials. But it would be an unloving father who would never enter into the trials of his kids that are suffering. He will be with us in the suffering. He will be with us. Can you imagine a child suffering and a father seeing it and a father never ever stepping in to help the child in that suffering. Some of you can imagine that, but let me tell you, that's not your heavenly father. Love steps into the dark places and assures us of who he is, and the gospel from our heavenly father does that, and it screams in word and action that God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. We pass that over sometimes because we say, yeah, 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 it's all trite. No, listen, God really, really, really loves you. Do you know that? As followers of Jesus in this life, we practice this thing called the gospel. 
We live out the gospel. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We saturate ourselves with God's grace and forgiveness and hope in the gospel. And then transformation happens. We become loving people. We become people of love. The love that we get from God becomes an outflow to love the people in our lives. First John says we love because he first loved us. Being loved by God and becoming people of God hook us up to a spigot of love that is poured out amongst all that we live among. Thinking eternally is how we live our lives worthy of the gospel. And one pastor named Matt in New York City learned this and shared a story about it. This pastor Matt wrote this, my friend Emilio owns a tiny pizzeria that makes the best New York pizza on Long Island. Emilio hates organized religion. And above the stove where he sticks the orders, he also collects small newspaper clippings about flawed and fallen pastors, ministers, and priests. I call it his rack of shame. And he knows I'm a pastor, and every time I come in for pizza, he leans over the counter, and he slides a few of his clippings on the counter, and he whispers, hey, look at this. This padre walked off with $80,000. Hey, look at this. This pastor slept with three church members. Hey, look at this. This guy abused some kids. And on and on and on it goes. And Amelia looks at me in the eye, and he says, do you get why I don't need your church? And with a triumphant flair, he then sticks his articles back on his rack of shame. A few months ago, I became fed up with his clergy bashing. And I blurted out, what does this prove, Emilio? So priests and pastors do despicable things. What if I started a rack of shame for people in your profession, and then I declared I will never eat pizza again? Actually, over the next few weeks, I tried rummaging through newspaper articles online, looking for articles about pizza guys that do nasty things, <laughs> spitting in the bread dough or using cheap ragu sauce instead of homemade. <laughs> but apparently, pizza guys live pretty clean lives. <laughs> Finally, after a month or two of bickering back and forth, I came to Emilio and I said, I need to order two slices of cheese pizza and I need to ask your forgiveness. He bristled and shot back. Is this a joke? Is this a trick? No, really, Emilio. I'm truly sorry for being a jerk and arguing with you. The truth is, ministers do screw up. We can be decent people, but sometimes we're frauds and hypocrites. And the truth is, I need Jesus every single day. Emilio immediately softened. And, he, and we become close friends. But I didn't say this to Emilio as an evangelism strategy. I said it because it's true and it's the gospel. I love the line that summarizes the gospel this way. We are more flawed than we ever dare to admit, and we are more loved than we ever dare to imagine. We are more flawed 
than we ever dare to admit, and we are more loved than we ever dare to imagine. I'm not sure why it's so hard to get that simple truth. I qualify for the cosmic rack of shame, but through God's infinite mercy, Jesus Christ took my place on the rack and set me free. May the love of Jesus so captivate your mind. May the love of Jesus so captivate my mind that when we walk in this life, we think eternally. And the lenses we view this world and we view our lives with are eternal Jesus lenses. And that would empower us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.